Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. Nothing that we have, nothing that we can desire compares with Christ. And yet Jesus, at one point, said the following, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Wow! Talk about Jesus being precious. Talk about and singing that Jesus is more precious than anything we have or we could own. Think about that, and then these words that Jesus gives about a category of people. This is the explanation Jesus gives about the second category of soils in the parable of the sower. Listen again to the words of Jesus about the second category of soils, of the four soils. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy, they have no root in themselves, but they do endure for a while until, until tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, and then they immediately fall. This is the backdrop. This is the background against which I would like for us to continue our study in the book of Acts this morning. Would you open the book of Acts, chapter 8, as Luke narrates for us a dark day in the life of the church, at least a dark day from a human perspective. I thought of entitling this sermon this morning, um, A Day of Apparent Defeat. And uh, while that would be certainly accurate, I think there's a greater point that Luke wants us to see about the early church on this day. When the day of tribulation, when the day of persecution came on account of the word of Christ, they were forced to scatter but did not give up the word on account of which they were persecuted. No. They not only they did not give it up, they actually went forward and kept scattering that word spreading that word as they were scattered. So the title of my message this morning is Tried and True. Tried and True. Would you open the Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. If you are using a Bible providing the chair in front of you, we hope you would, encourage, you would open that Bible and, um, and, and read it. You may find it on page number 952. And here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. It's a short passage compared to what we read last week. Those of you who are not here last week, we had uh, about 70-plus verses as we read together Peter's, um, uh, Stephen's sermon. But here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church 
and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join with me asking the Lord to bless this word for our hearts? Let's pray. Father, we are never more privileged than when we get a chance to hear your word, to hear from you. That is our desire this morning. We pray that you would take away distractions in our hearts, ideas in our minds that would take away our concentration, our focus. Father, we pray you take away the sin in our hearts that might blur the clarity of your word to us this morning. We pray all this for the sake of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This passage is short. Do you like short passages? Might be a short sermon. Might. This passage, it's an ending. It's really an ending. It's an ending to a great transition. Actually, it's one of the greatest transitions in the book of Acts. It's actually an ending to the greatest transition in the history of the church. It's a transition from the focus on the church in Jerusalem towards the Gentile mission. It's the transition from taking the gospel first in Jerusalem, as Jesus commanded, and then to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's the greatest transition. The gospel being taken from Jerusalem and spreading up and out to all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. The rest of chapter 8 will present us with two examples of this expansion of proclaiming the gospel in Samaria and the, to, to the Ethiopian eunuch. Then in chapter 9, we see the gospel expanding by converting Saul, one of the leading persecutors of the church. Then in chapter 10, we see the gospel expanding by the conversion of Cornelius, which solidifies for the Jewish Christians that the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles is indeed God's decree. After these events have taken place, the church is ready for its first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13 and 14. A great transition. But all of this shift, all of this transition towards the Gentile mission started with Stephen's sermon and his execution in chapter 6. And seven. And then the verses we read today, in verses uh, chapter 8, are an ending to Stephen's sermon. They're an ending to Stephen's transition. Last week, we considered more carefully Stephen's sermon and how Stephen preached the rejection of Jesus. It was not new. 
It was not grounded, and it came in a package. That's what Stephen preached last week as we considered. Well, today, I'd like for us to look at the effects of Stephen's sermon on the church. Upon that whole church, what implications did the Spirit-filled sermon that uh, Stephen preached, what implications and effects did that sermon have on the church? Two points I'd like to point to you this morning. And here's the first. You ready? Proclamation can lead to persecution for the church. Proclamation can lead to persecution. And in chapter 8, it's not just a possibility. It's an actuality. Two weeks ago, we concluded in chapter 6, verse 7, that the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That was a great conclusion to what is considered by many commentators the first major section of the book of Acts. And that refrain of the word of God continuing to increase and multiplying, will that refrain will be echoed again five more times in the book of Acts. That's like the echo. That's like the refrain of the book of Acts. Up until that point, we see this word that was preached making big changes in people's lives, bearing great fruit. Many people have come to embrace Christ and the hope of having their sins forgiven, the hope of having their guilt being removed through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Many people, thousands and thousands of people, have become convicted of their sin and guilt before God. They have become convicted of their great need to have their sins washed away. They have become convicted of their great need for a Savior. And at one point in chapter 2, their conviction was so strong that in the midst of Peter preaching, they said, brothers, what shall we do? That's how strong their conviction worked in their hearts. And they believed that Jesus was God's solution to deal with their sin. So thousands upon thousands have embraced the news about Jesus and became followers of him. And all of this was possible because the Spirit of God was using the proclamation of the apostles to bring people to faith in Christ. This was a great time in the life of the church. Great time. We all want to camp there. We all want to see more of that in our churches. Here at Park Hills, don't we? I do. But then comes the second half of chapter 6. Then comes chapter 7. And the church-wide effects in chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. On this day, the proclamation of the word triggered not gathering, not the gathering of new converts, but scattering 
the scattering of existing Christians. The same full proclamation of the word produced a different result. Instead of conversion, it produced persecution. This is not the pleasant part of life of the church, is it? But it is, it's still a real possibility. It's a real possibility when the word is preached with faithfulness, especially in a hostile environment. The same faithful message. Two opposite reactions. What do we learn from this? First, a great caution. Numbers are not an absolute sign of faithfulness. They're not always, they are many times, but they're not always a reliable source of measuring the health of a church. If numbers alone are an absolute sign of health and faithfulness, then this day in the life of the church of Jerusalem was a day of defeat and failure. Then this day, Stephen's sermon was a bad sermon because it produced a scattering of numbers. This picture of the faithfulness of the word producing persecution challenges us, the Western church, that doing everything possible to increase in numbers should not be our ultimate aim of what we do as a church. Now, hear me out. We certainly should desire, and we must pray, that the preaching of God's word will bring forth great fruit, and a great number of people would become followers of Jesus Christ. This we should pray. This will be one of the focuses of our Sunday night prayer services. That the Lord would use us, that the word would the Lord would, would use the testimony and the witness of this church here in Rollingwood, that more people will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we must be willing to accept that according to the Bible, the faithful preaching of God's Word can also bring the opposite effect of rejection and even persecution. The faithful preaching of God's Word, the faithful proclamation, can bring persecution. Chapter 8 begins with the words, And Saul approved of his execution. Now why would Luke bother to tell us about one Man in that crowd? There are many in that crowd. Why bother telling us about one name, one man who approved of the execution? Well, because of what comes in, in verse 3. Luke tells us that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Later in Acts, we get to hear Paul's own words about the season of his life. At the end of the book of Acts, Paul recounts what he did in these days. In Acts 26, verse 9, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Luke is introducing us to this name, to this person who would become this persecutor. Is there hope 
for a man like this? Is there hope for a man like this? Can the gospel change a man like this? Well, we don't have to wait long in the book of Acts to get the answer to this question. It's just a chapter over in chapter 9. We see how God reveals himself to this persecutor of the church and brings him to himself. Praise be to God. This gives us great hope. But you know what? Before we can get to chapter 9, the reality is that there were many Christians who saw death before they, before they saw Paul's conversion. Reality is that even before chapter 9, there are many Christians who suffered at the hands of Saul. Reality is that even before chapter 9, there are Christians who are going to suffer and be persecuted. Jesus prepared his disciples for this reaction in John chapter 16. Jesus said to them, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out in the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering sacrifice to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Friends, we must understand that the message of Jesus, if it is communicated clearly and faithfully, has this potential causing our rejection by society. Proclamation can lead to rejection. Proclamation can lead to tribulation. Proclamation can lead to persecution. The message about Jesus is a threat to our human-based views of ourselves. The message about Jesus is a, is a threat and seeks to replace our human-centered views of the world. I want to speak to youth this morning. Youth, can I get your attention for a second? Most of you are in high school or even middle school. Some of you are in early college years. I don't know what your college plans are, but when you get to college, you really get to see the kind of anger, the kind of frustration the world has when you say that you believe in absolute truth, the absolute truth of God, that there's a God who can tell us what we should do, who can tell us what's right or wrong. And you'll get a chance to either to state your opinions on so many life issues that involve our perspective of God. And you'll have a chance either to cave in and be accepted or say what this book says. And you'll run the risk of being ridiculed, laughed at, dismissed as being an, a, 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 an inferior intellectual. All these things will come. Be ready for that. In an intellectual world that we live in like today, that is opposed to the revelation of God, you must be ready. You'll be mocked and ridiculed. There's just no way around it. And for the sake of you avoiding that ridicule, you may be tempted 
to keep it quiet, to not make a big deal of what you're doing on weekends, on Sunday. You'll be tempted to be quiet. Be ready. Proclamation can lead to persecution. But here's the second truth. Here's the second point that Luke wants to tell us. Persecution can also lead to more proclamation. Persecution can also lead to more proclamation. Look at verse 4. Now those who are scattered went about preaching the word. Those who are scattered went about preaching the word. Persecution can lead to more proclamation. But does it always? And I want to tell you no. Based on God's word, not every persecution leads to more proclamation. Not every persecution leads to people actually getting stronger in the faith. Reality is there are times when persecution comes that it creates great intimidation and fear. There are times when a persecution can wipe out a group of Christians and the, the, the testimony at church is wiped out. There are times when great persecution comes or tribulation comes and those who claim to be Christians give up on their faith in the face of persecution. Pliny the Younger was a Roman governor giving um, leadership to a Roman province, Roman territory of what would be today modern Turkey. And Pliny the Younger, this Roman governor, wrote a letter in 112 to the uh, Roman emperor Trajan reporting to him about accusations against Christians and the punishment he inflicted on them. And here's what he says at one point in this letter. This letter is a, a beautiful document that tells us about what was going on in those days. He says, I have taken this course about those who have been brought before me as Christians. I asked them whether they were Christians or not. If they confessed that they were Christians, I asked them again and a third time, intermixing threatenings with the questions. If they persevered in their confession, I ordered them to be executed. For I did not doubt, but let their confession be of any sort whatsoever. This positiveness and inflex inflexible obstinacy deserve to be punished. That's Pliny the Younger. But that's not all he writes in this letter. He goes on and he says later that those who have been accused to be Christians, when they were called to give an account, there were some... They said they were Christians, but presently denied it again. That indeed, they had been Christians, but had ceased to be so some three years ago, some many more. And one, there was that said that he had not been so these 20 years. All these worshipped your image and the images of our gods. They also cursed Christ. Now, what does this tell you? about persecution. Some will endure to the end. Some will fall away from Christ. Persecution does that. And in the, in the case of those who fall away, persecution shows their true colors. Friends, our profession of faith, in some ways, is like um, a teabag experience. You made a tea with a tea bag? 
You only make the tea when you put the tea back in the hot water. Now, if the, if, if the tea doesn't taste well, if you, after you put the tea bag in the water and you don't like the taste of the tea, do you blame the water? No. You blame the tea. It's the flavor of the tea you don't like, not the water. Right? Hot water, all it does, it brings out what's inside. It brings out the flavor. In a similar way, our Christian's lives are like that. God allows us to experience hot water scenarios that draw out the flavors of our hearts. In such situations, God allows us to see what he already knows, but what we may not know yet and what others may not know. Hot water moments reveal to us and to others around us what is going on inside of us. Such moments reveal what we're really made of. And we don't have to wait for persecution to reveal what we're really made of. God, in His graciousness, allows us all kinds of smaller hot water experiences to show us what we're made of. But friends, persecution has this power, this ability. It doesn't turn us better or worse. It reveals what we truly are. Now bring all this to Acts chapter 8, verse 4. What was the reaction and the aftermath of those who had been scattered out of Jerusalem when the hot water was poured on them? What was their flavor like? What did they have inside? For some, it's true that the cost was very high, the cost of their physical lives, like Stephen and many others, like that Saul murdered. For others, it meant prison. For others, it meant being forced to, to leave their homes. But they were willing to endure all this for the sake of Christ. But that's not all. That's not all the flavor that came out of them on that day. Look again at verse 4. Now those who scattered went about preaching the word. What's the flavor that came out of them? It's a preaching of the word. Why? Because that's what was inside in a true way. When they're tested, when they're tried, they're found true because the flavor that comes out of them is the preaching of the word. What's amazing about this verse is not simply that they went about preaching the word. That's not the miracle. The miracle is that they went around and preached the same word which triggered their scatter. It's the same word that triggered the death of some of their friends. It's the same word that triggered the imprisonment of some of their relatives. It's the same word that they were preaching that triggered their forced departure. They didn't have time to put their house on the market. They didn't have time to pack their stuff. They had to leave. It's the same word that now they go on and they continue to preach. And when they're scattered, they don't keep it to themselves. They're not hiding. Hopefully nobody will find them. Hopefully they can have a safe, um, safe time. No, they keep preaching the same word that brought their persecution. How can we explain this? How can we explain this? There's only one explanation. That word 
was in their hearts. Truly. Truthfully. That's why the words of Jesus, that's why the words of Jesus are so powerful in that parable of the sower. When tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately they fall away. Why? Because they were not a good soil from the beginning. They were not really, they have not really embraced truly the hope they have received. They did it for a little bit, for a little while, but it was not true. That's why Acts 8, 4 is a passage of the church being tempted, tried, and found true. And they kept preaching the word. By the way, I need to explain that word. It is not talking about giving sermons on Sunday mornings. When it uses the word, preaching the word, actually in the, in the Greek language it uses the word euangelizomai. It's one of the first times it uses the word for evangelism. You know, some did it in, in bigger settings, that's true, but others like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch did it one-on-one. -on -one. That's the kind of preaching, and he preached from the Old Testament. You know, they were preaching the Word of God. This means that it's not about having a gift or having some sort of a special calling that you need in order to preach the Word. No. And look at who are, who are doing it. It's everybody except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem, not because they didn't want to scatter the gospel to the other parts of Judea and Samaria. They stayed in Jerusalem because they wanted to stay with those who were still around. They wanted to stay in the place that, that the persecution was the greatest. They are in the center of it all. But now those who scattered, they are the ones who are going about and, and preaching the word. They're speaking the word. Friends, we should be we should realize that this is actually a better sign of a healthy church than numbers. This is a better sign of a healthy church than numbers. It's not the numbers of those who are gathered, but the numbers of those who speak the word about Jesus. I think that's a better sign. The numbers of those who speak the word about Jesus. Friend, if you are a member of this church, and if history would repeat itself, and we would go through the same experiences that the church in Jerusalem went through, where in a very short time, most of you members of the church would have to scatter. The church leadership would stay behind. Would you go and start preaching the word wherever you would scatter? If you had to relocate because of the word, would you go and preach the word? Would you? Would you associate yourself publicly with the name of Jesus? If you would go to a, church, to a place that there's already churches, would you actually join? Would you? I don't foresee any immediate reason why most of you should scatter and relocate. But I have a question. If the Lord calls you to relocate from this place, will you go preaching the word? There's a very weird phenomenon these days among Christians in America. When they re relocate uh, from one place to another, for whatever reason, many Christians not only keep silent about Jesus, but they desire to remain hidden in closet Christians for a while, not considering finding another church for a while. I cannot explain that phenomenon. I don't know why. That's why in our church covenant, 
the last set, sentence in our church covenant says, should we relocate from this place, we will, as soon as possible, unite with some other church. Why do we put that in our covenant? So we want to make sure, we want to encourage you that should the Lord relocate you, call you to relocate to another place, you will seek to associate yourself with the name of Jesus. We want to be a church that when our members move out, they move with this clear responsibility of speaking the word about Jesus and associating themselves with Christ wherever they go. And if there's a church in the new area, to join it. This means that for the duration of our time together, when we're bound together here as a congregation, one of my responsibilities as a pastor is to equip each of you to speak the word about Jesus. That's our job as a church, to encourage one another to speak the word about Jesus. Why? Because when tribulation comes, when hardship comes, or when you just have to relocate without any tribulation or hardship, we want to make sure that what's inside of you comes out. Not hiddenness. Not thinking about taking a time off from being a Christian or being a part of the body of Christ. Not taking time off to associate yourself away from Jesus and the body of Christ. Friends, we want to be a church that equips you that when the time comes for us to be put in hot water, the flavor of Christ will come out. That's why this passage is such a beautiful passage. That's why this is a beautiful ending. This is a beautiful transition to see that the church in Jerusalem, this was not a day of defeat for them. It was a day of victory because when the hot water came, the flavor they had was the flavor of Jesus. That's our hope. That's our desire for us as a church. We will continue our, our time this morning with partaking of the Lord's Supper. As we prepare our hearts to partake of the Supper, let us examine ourselves. Let us question ourselves if what's inside of us is coming out, especially in the moments of hardship, of testing, of temptation, of hot water moments. We will end with few words of prayer as we do so, you join me in preparing our hearts and transitioning to this time of examining our hearts, what's inside, and hearing the invitation of the Lord to partake once again, to partake of his supper, of his sacrifice for us. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we prepare to transition to the Lord's Supper? Our gracious Father, we praise your holy name. Because the proclamation of your word reminds us of rejection, reminds us of tribulation, reminds us of persecution. And why should we be surprised, especially on a day like this, when we are preparing to partake of the Lord's Supper, to remember that our Savior himself was rejected, afflicted, smitten, crucified, Father, enable us to walk in his steps. Enable us to walk in the path that he has walked so that our proclamation 
when it triggers persecution, when it triggers rejection, we would not be surprised, but we would be ready. And that when that moment comes, even in the midst of rejection, in the midst of tribulation, we pray that what would come out of us would be nothing but the aroma of Christ, the, the words of Christ. Father, we pray that you would implant in us your truth. You'd be truthfully changing our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.